Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, now as we open up your word, I pray that um, the reason for which you gave it uh, would be magnified, that it would be used by your Spirit in this way. And the reason that you've given these gospel accounts in particular to point us to Jesus as the culmination of all history, the only hope for us and anyone. Father, may your Holy Spirit powerfully work uh, through the preaching of this word to proclaim what is already there, not to add, not to invent, not to give us what we would hope for for ourselves, but to show us that infinitely greater treasure, which is Jesus, as he has been shown to us in your word. May he be glorified, and Father, may uh, dead hearts be awakened to life, and may those sheep who are straying or struggling be drawn back to you, and may we all rest only in Jesus, shepherded by him until we see him in glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. This morning we begin a, a series walking through that book together. Church history, uh, right up to some very early references, have credited this uh, writing to Mark, who was often seen in the company of the apostles in the book of Acts. And uh, he was writing, uh, we see in those, those ancient texts, based on the account and teaching that he received from the apostle Peter. Those things aren't in the book itself, of course, uh, but it is important to know that as far back as we have texts on this book, it's been considered not just a book that is in agreement with the other accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but that it is clearly based on the eyewitness testimony of the ministry of Jesus that was proclaimed by the apostles. This is important for us for understanding just what a gospel is and how we're meant to read it. Let's look just at the very first verse of Mark here. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is really helpful here. He didn't just give us a heading for our passage and a title for our sermon. He gave us a title, essentially, for his whole book. Our passage this morning is the beginning, but this whole work, the whole 16 chapters, could be called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Sometimes when a person first hears the word gospel, there's a little bit of confusion. Is the gospel first and foremost a message, or is it a title of four books that we have in the Bible, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And we can see here in Mark that using the word gospel as a heading for these accounts is appropriate. That's what Mark himself does. It's not a title so much as it is a kind of writing, a kind of literature. Think of the prophecy of Isaiah, the letter by Paul, the gospel according to Mark. So why should we call this type of book a gospel, and how then should we read it? Well, we know, right, that we read different kinds of books in different ways. Kids, you know that. When you read a textbook, a book full of lessons differently than you read a storybook. You don't ever put down your book, your textbook, after you've learned a math lesson and say that you didn't think it was a very good textbook because it didn't have a good plot and the characters weren't very well thought out. You know what you're looking for because what a book was written for tells you what you're going to look for when you open it. 
you're going to read a textbook different than a storybook. Now, to understand a gospel as a kind of book, it's really helpful for us to remember what the gospel is, because the goal is essentially the same. Gospel, of course, means good news. It's it's a word that was used at the time, the Roman context this was written in. You'd get guys running from the battlefield or running from Rome to announce really exciting, joyful news, like the emperor had had a son or the emperor had won a battle. Mark tells us that his good news is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ, of course, is Greek for Messiah. You'll remember, all through our Old Testament, we saw this a lot in Isaiah, the Messiah is the king who is anointed to save God's people. So Mark has written this book to tell us the good news that Jesus has come as that Savior and King that God's people have been waiting for. But more than that, that this Savior King is the Son of God himself. So as we walk through Mark, our main goal will be to hear and to understand that good news. That's what Mark wants us to do. Every event, every lesson in Mark's account We might get some good examples from Jesus. We might get some good lessons from Jesus. We might get some relatable moments in the gospel. But all of that is meant to be a part of the actual primary purpose that Mark is writing for, which is that we could see all of this and understand the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, came and lived and died and rose again to establish his kingdom. And that has really happened. And you can read this testimony so that you can really trust in him. You're going to see through Mark, as we read it, lots and lots of evidence of who Jesus is. Watch for that and also watch how people respond to that evidence. Often they're going to be asking questions like, who is this? What is he saying? Sometimes they're going to have objections. I don't like who he is and what he's saying. Eventually, you're going to see confessions. If this is what he's doing, if this is what he says, I think I know who this is. So watch how people respond to Jesus, because that's going to show us what Mark thinks is the only logical response to what he is testifying to here. Now, we do see there are some people who look at all this evidence and reject it. So it is important for us to ask the question, do I know who Jesus is? Not some social idea of Jesus, not the Jesus that I like to know personally. Do I know who Jesus is, the actual Jesus who came uh, into Judea 2,000 years ago? Do I understand why he actually came? Do I know what the mission of Jesus actually was? And do I trust in him as that Messiah, is that what I believe he really did as my salvation. So Mark calls our passage this morning the beginning of the gospel. And already in this first passage, we're going to face the question of who Jesus is and whether we ought to trust in him or not. So let's look at Mark's beginning of the gospel, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing we see in this beginning of the gospel this morning is that the gospel begins with announcements. Mark begins with a quote from Isaiah. took us exactly one week to get back to the book of Isaiah. And that makes a lot of sense because... Why did we want to talk about Isaiah in the first place? Isaiah's main job is to be one of the main prophets in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah, who he is and what he's going to come to do. So it makes a lot of sense that Mark is going to start his gospel testifying to the truth of Jesus with references to Isaiah to show that Jesus really is the one that Isaiah and the other prophets were looking forward to. He's our long-awaited Savior. Mark references Isaiah 40, which Brother Kevin read for us. This wonderful promise that comfort is coming for God's people. Salvation is coming. God is going to shepherd his people. Even good news we heard in this passage, which is coming to God's people. Those are wonderful promises which Mark is telling us Jesus is going to keep. But Mark's quotation also includes a little bit of Malachi, a a passage where Malachi is actually quoting and preaching on the earlier prophecy from Isaiah. And this quote from Mark isn't just pointing to Jesus, is it? Mark quotes this to point to John the Baptist. He is the one crying in the wilderness to prepare for the Lord's coming. John's place in the earlier prophets shows us how important John is. It's pretty rare that you get prophets prophesying about the coming of a prophet. John holds a special place as the last Old Testament prophet. And as the last one, John in many ways is the summary of all of them. He is the representation standing there of everything that those prophets were doing. This is why Mark points out John's appearance. The reader hearing about John's appearance would think about many of the earlier prophets, in particular, Elijah. And Elijah himself was meant to be the sort of prophet, the template of the prophets, the prophet among the prophets. He was considered a key prophet defining that role. So John is coming like a new Elijah, a representative of all of the prophets and their ministry. What he does represents all of them and speaks for all of them. And what he does is announce what all those prophets were pointing towards. The Messiah is here. The Lord has come to save his people. John can represent all the prophets as this massive pointer finger pointing us to Jesus. 
He is the one. And telling people that they must be prepared for his coming, make straight his paths. We see that John's ministry was all about saying. What was his preaching? He's coming. He's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And John's baptism was also all about preparing people for Jesus. John wasn't teaching baptism as the goal of his ministry. This is a special good work that we all need to do. His baptism was a symbol. It was a sign of faith that proclaimed something that made people ready for Jesus to come. Up to that point, God's people were very used to living with signs and symbols. The temple, the sacrifices, the law, the prophets themselves were full of things, stuff, that, that weren't works to prove that people were good, but were signs of what God was going to do. They were ways for people to understand God's plan and to look forward with faith to that time when God would actually accomplish salvation for them. So John says, I'm just baptizing with water, but the one is coming after me and he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit God's wonderful personal presence is going to be poured out on people. John is pointed to that wonderful moment when Jesus dies on the cross and the curtain of the temple that is hiding the holy, wonderful, beautiful presence of God is torn in two. And of course, that moment directly leads to that wonderful moment at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit appears in tongues of fire, and settles on all those who have trusted in Jesus. By saying that everyone who is saved by Jesus can be baptized, filled, covered with the Holy Spirit, John is promising that the one who is coming after him is going to be the solution to mankind's problems since the Garden of Eden, since the fall into sin. That is where our sin separated us from God. That is where we were unable to dwell with God. In all of history, the presence of God in the burning bush in Mount Sinai and the tabernacle in the temple is looking forward to this moment when Jesus would finally come and deal with sin and the curse so that we could be reconciled to God, even be baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. So this is the Messiah who's coming. And he's coming in sandals. He is coming with feet. He's coming as a human. Not a vision, not an angel. The Messiah has come with a human body to live a human life. And when Jesus appears, when he comes as a man... Mark doesn't give us John's own announcement at this encounter like the other apostles do. Mark focuses our attention on the really big announcement. Jesus comes and is baptized by John, and as soon as he comes out of the water, Mark says there is this vision where there is this tear, and you can glimpse right into heaven to the holy presence of God. And the Father himself speaks out from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. To be someone's son means in a very real way that you are equal with them. Now before 
our children get any funny ideas. Of course, children still obey and submit to their parents. But we know that by nature, children are the same as their parents. The son of a bear is always going to be a bear. The son of a human being is always going to be a human being. So who is the son of God by nature? He is God and equal with God. Jesus does have a special relationship with God, God the Father as a son, but he is equal to the Father. And as the Father makes this announcement, the Spirit comes and makes his own announcement. He appears visibly as a dove. Now, the Spirit never needs to be seen. He is doing this for our sake. That's always true when we can see the Holy Spirit. His appearing as a dove is likely looking back to that time when Noah released a dove over the waters of the flood, when God was going to remake the world. Peter himself connects the flood with baptism in his letters. We see there a cleansing, a making new. Baptism is also the promise of a new creation. The Spirit coming down over the water when Jesus is baptized is even looking right back to those very first moments in the Bible where the Spirit's hovering over the waters of creation. The Spirit's presence here is really a promise that the ministry of Jesus is going to be the bringing about of a new creation. This is where God is going to start making the world new. This passage also just gives us a wonderful glimpse of the Trinity, doesn't it? It's a rare moment when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all individually show themselves to be present in the same place at the same time. God does this to show us something very important, not just about who he is, but something important about the ministry of Jesus. When God the Father calls Jesus his beloved son, he's not just confirming Jesus, who Jesus is, but he's approving of him. He's approving of Jesus' mission. He's approving of his ministry. He's confirming that he, God the Father, loves what Jesus the Messiah is doing. He is saying, what he does is my will. I approve of it and I desire it. Meanwhile, the Spirit is not just appearing, but he is descending upon Jesus. He's visibly showing that Jesus has a special anointing of the Spirit for his ministry. And the Spirit, we see, is actually present with Jesus throughout his ministry. So the ministry of Jesus, his life and ministry that we're going to see throughout the book of Mark, is not just the ministry of Jesus. It is the Father's plan for history carried out by the Son with the special anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. This means that as we look at everything Jesus does, trusting in Him means trusting in the Messiah and in the Father and in the Spirit. And to reject the Messiah to reject Jesus is also to reject the Father and deny the Spirit. So even before Jesus has begun preaching, we have all of these wonderful announcements from the scriptures, Isaiah and Malachi, from John, the prophet to end all prophets, from the Father and the Spirit, and they're all pointing to Jesus, saying even before his ministry has begun, this is the one to put your trust in. There he is. That is the one to hope in. That is the one to cling to. We know all that 13 verses in. You can have absolute confidence. There is no one else in history worth your faith. 
No one else worthy to trust in to accomplish God's salvation. Have you trusted in Jesus? Our next point refers to how John prepared people for the Messiah, which helps us understand what it means for us to receive him and to trust in him as well. Our next point is this. The gospel begins with repentance. The main way John prepared people for Jesus was through baptism. John's baptism is called a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. His baptism didn't accomplish anything mystical or supernatural. It was a proclamation. Remember, Jesus is going to accomplish the true baptism of the Spirit. But we see that John's baptism was meant to say something, and it was done alongside a vocal confession of sin. Peter tells us that this baptism is meant to represent being washed clean. Not just the water washing dirt from our body, but actually appealing to God, asking God for a clean conscience. Baptism shows that you recognize and you confess that you are a sinner. That you need your sins taken. You need to be cleaned of them, made new from them. This is in the word repentance itself, which means turning. Repentance isn't just not liking your sin. It means rejecting it, leaving it, and turning from it so that you can turn to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is helpful here. Question 87 asks, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is that repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The people who were coming to John were declaring as they were baptized that they wanted the Messiah to cleanse them of their sin. They needed to be made new. They were desperate to be made new so that they could turn from God and live, turn from their sin and turn to God and live lives for God of obedience and faith. This proclamation of repentance and wanting cleansing, that is still central to what is proclaimed in our baptism. What was true for Mark in his day is still true. To come to Jesus is to repent of your sins and want him to cleanse you of them. It's often paired with faith in Scripture because repentance is so deeply tied to what we have faith in Jesus for. Jesus died to take our sin upon himself, to bear its punishment, so that we could have the real baptism of the Spirit, so we could actually be renewed, so we could actually walk in a way that is pleasing to God, being cleansed and made new. If you really want Jesus to save you in this way, you have to agree with what his word says about your sin. Hate it and turn away from it. Many people came to John to repent and be baptized. We hear that, the whole country. But we hear from other places in the Gospels that many people also rejected John. And they rejected his baptism of repentance. They claimed to be waiting for the Messiah. But they rejected John because they refused to confess their sin and repent. Today, so, so many people still claim to believe in Jesus, even call him Savior, without repenting. Some people even believe they've sort of checked off a repentance box where they prayed the appropriate prayer, 
feeling bad for their sin, wanting to be saved from it. But they even hope that their good actions, now that they're doing good things, are going to be evidence to God that he has to forgive their mistakes. They think that when they stand before God, they'll be able to say, you know, I did some things wrong, but I did a lot of things right, and you've got to receive me. You've got to let me in. Repentance is simple. It's not complex. But for many people, it is the hardest thing in the world. Repentance means agreeing with God about your sin. And that in itself, that real confession of sin, like those folks going to John at the Jordan did, is going to be the most humbling experience of your life. Your whole life. Not just the stuff that you agree wasn't that great, but even the good stuff. Your best actions have left you with nothing to show God. There's nothing you have done that God could approve of and say, well, there you go. You belong here in my kingdom. Your best works, stuff that really was helpful or good, was still full of self-righteousness. It was still full of your own desire for glory. It didn't recognize God's glory and his goodness and was still an offense against his law and his character. That's humbling, isn't it? That's a humbling thing to admit. It's a hard thing for any of us to want to confess that. And confessing it means to turn away from it. It means rejecting all of your actions, even your goals, even those things that you think are most true to yourself. This is who I am. This is what I'm all about. It means recognizing that apart from God, all of that is rebellion and sin. And then thinking The best news that I could hear is that someone has come to save me from that. Not just save you from your inability to live up to all you wanted to be. Not just to save you from your poor self-esteem, but from your own sinful heart and the punishment from God that it really deserves. Even after we are saved by Jesus, our lives are still full of repentance. Anytime we see our sin, every time we recognize it, we confess it, we run from it, we throw ourselves upon Jesus and the power of the Spirit to kill that sin and renew us and make us holy. Friends, have we not seen countless examples of people watering down repentance into something that never really challenges their pride that barely even admits that they're sinners. We know that pull in our own hearts. Have we not seen it? People who would never say that they are unworthy of God's salvation. Deep down, they still think that God, God's going to have to save them by looking at themselves, who they are, and what they've done. And this attitude that hides deep in our hearts often gets revealed in our relationships with other people particularly in the church, doesn't it? I want to ask you something. Do you think that right now, a brother or sister who is concerned about your behavior, your heart, your actions, maybe concerned about something that you don't think is sinful, do you think that they could approach you with their Bible open and ask whether or not you were sinning? Ask you that. How do you think that conversation would go? If it has happened to you, how did it go? Do you think people might be afraid to do that for you because they expect you'd take it poorly? 
that you would find it offensive, that they think that you're wrong, that they maybe think that you're sinful. Mark has shown us that repentance is in many ways the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of receiving it. If you reject it, you might just have to consider whether or not your pride, your confidence in yourself means that you have an entirely different gospel than God does. Paul knew what repentance meant. Paul could look at his whole life, all those things he was most proud of, the stuff he'd worked hardest to earn, years to strive for, the things that he most loved about himself, and he could tell the Philippians, yeah, that was garbage. That was worse than garbage. Because he realized that those were the very things that were keeping him from having Jesus. He said he gave them all up. Why? So that he could have Christ. He realized that these were the things that Jesus died to take from him, to save him from. Have you received the gospel with that kind of repentance? Ready to see anything, your favorite hobbies and pastimes, the things you're most proud of, the things that you love telling people are most true about your personality. Would you be ready to see those things as rubbish if they stand between you and knowing Jesus? Friend, it is worth repenting. Because we're not just repenting to beat ourselves up, to prove that we're winning the humility contest. You're not repenting so that you can be scorned and rejected. Look at that sinner. He thought he was so great. Look at how terrible he is. That's not why we're repenting. When you are repenting, you are setting aside your sin and the things you love for yourself so that you can have Jesus. When Jesus finally joined all of these repenting people at the riverside, what did he do? Did he come to show off how great he was? How superior he was? Did he come to mock them? What did Jesus do? He walked down into the water. He went up to John and he got baptized like everybody else. While so many people, because of their pride and their love of themselves, refused to go near that water, Jesus himself accepted John's baptism. Why? He didn't need to repent. He had nothing to repent of. But the one who had no sin came and lived out his perfection by taking upon himself every single human requirement. He did everything that we could have done and everything that we failed to do. Jesus' baptism was a wonderful sign of how Jesus had come to keep so many of the laws that he didn't even have to keep, that he had no burden to keep, the laws that were given to us because we were sinners. When we are baptized, we identify with Jesus. We go down in the water and we come up and we say his death and his resurrection counts for us. But when Jesus was baptized, he did it to identify with us. And by going in and out of the water, he was pointing to that wonderful day when he would identify with us by taking our sin upon himself and suffering the wrath of God. When you think about repentance and understanding the weight of your sin. 
It is to understand how much Jesus took upon Himself on the cross for you. And Jesus would identify with His people three days later when the price was paid and death was beaten and He came up out of the grave again. Jesus did all that for us because of our sin. Stop holding on to your pride. Let go of that confidence, that resistance to God which is drawing you to hell. Stop treating your self-confidence and self-esteem like it's so important to really see your sin, not just your sinful actions, but your sinful heart, is to recognize you have nothing to show God except rebellion and wickedness. See that and hate it and reject it. Turn from it, run from it, so that you can embrace the one who left his heavenly throne to live a human life with all of its requirements and die to save you. Remember, John says this confession and repentance is not unto shame, not unto punishment, it's unto forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit coming down assures us of that. It is unto new life. So the gospel begins with repentance. Lastly, the gospel begins in the wilderness. Mark's quote from Isaiah tells us the voice of John is crying out in the wilderness. John carries out his ministry at a part of the Jordan that was commonly referred to as the wilderness. Everything about John was meant to show a man who was living far away from comfort and human refinements. And then, Jesus, when he goes to John to be announced, must go out into the wilderness. It's into the wilderness where, where God says, this is who Jesus is, my beloved son. But even from there, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and the first thing he does is to drive him out even further into the wilderness, out into the desert. Now, Mark doesn't go into detail like Matthew and Luke do regarding Jesus' temptation in the desert. What happened there with the devil? Mark wants us to think about this trial as a whole, and he wants to use it to set the stage for Jesus' ministry, which is about to begin in verse 14. Mark tells us Jesus went out to where the wild things are, those wild animals. You might remember them from Isaiah. They often appear in the Bible's depictions of wilderness. Their presence is a sign that you are far away from civilization, from comfort, from refinement. They're often a sign of the judgment that God has brought upon a place for its sin. God has leveled it, destroyed it for its wickedness. It's now a home of the wild animals. And Jesus is going out into this wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this is representative of all of Jesus' ministry. It's to show what it really meant for Jesus, the Son of God, to become a man. What did it mean for him to come and live among us, to live like us if he was going to save us? God's creation was not meant to be a wilderness. It was meant to be a garden, a cultivated garden by God and by us carrying out his good dominion mandate, overseeing creation faithfully. But it was our sin and our folly that began to turn this creation into a wilderness, a cursed place, a place of thorns and predators. 
When Isaiah says that John's voice came into the wilderness, we see that he's not just speaking of a physical wilderness, he's speaking into the wilderness of our sin and estrangement from God. This very wilderness that we live in away from God. We even see that great silence that 400 years before John appeared where God didn't speak to his people through prophets. And then John comes into this sinful, horrible, distant state that we are in apart from God. And John blasts out like a trumpet and says, God is not going to leave you here. God is coming. He's coming here into the wilderness and he's coming to get you. Instead of leaving us to suffer in this wilderness of God's wrath, Jesus leaves his heavenly throne. When heaven opened there, we were getting a glimpse of where Jesus was before he came down into the wilderness. But now he's not up there, he's down here, taking on human flesh, coming into the wilderness to live with us and for us. He experienced all of the weakness and the pain like we do. He suffered all the effects of sin without ever sinning to deserve them. He knew what it was like to experience temptation, but he himself suffered under it and never once sinned because of this world's temptations. Even the devil coming against Jesus in these verses is pointing to the fact that all through his ministry, Jesus is opposed by Satan and the demons. Jesus faced more than you and I will ever face in this life. And he faced it as someone who never deserved to go through any pain or suffering. Jesus did it so that he could be our real, actual human representative. Hebrews says that now that he is in glory, now that he's back at his father's side, he is there as our representative, our mediator, our priest. And he is a mediator who knows what our experience is like. As Hebrews says, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted just like we are, but without sin. He did this. He experienced life in the wilderness so that we could, through him, come near to where he is now. He came near to us so that we can draw near to the throne of grace. By coming into the wilderness, Jesus becomes our perfect sacrifice so that he can then be the perfect priest that brings us into God's presence. Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 13, 11 to 14. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Every year before Jesus came on the day of atonement, the people of Israel would place a hand on a goat, symbolically putting all their sins on that goat, and then they would send that goat away from them out into the wilderness as a sign that the goat was taking their sins with it away from them. Jesus didn't just come into the wilderness to have the real authentic human experience. He did this to represent us there so that he could bear our sin, carry it out into the wilderness for us. His ministry begins in the wilderness 
outside the city and his ministry is going to end being cast out of the city to suffer on the cross. Jesus goes into the wilderness because that is where he goes to take our sin to save us. His coming into the wilderness with us secured a place for us in the eternal city of God with him. Now, trusting in Jesus might cost you the so-called civilization of this world. You might be rejected like Jesus, cast out like he was, lose the stuff of this world like he did. But if we have already repented like Paul, we will recognize how small this is in exchange for knowing and trusting the one who gave up so much more to save us. We're just giving up the wilderness. So in these first dozen or so verses, Mark is assuring us of the nature of our Savior, the mission of our Savior, and also the heart of our Savior what he was willing to do to save us. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And even here at the very beginning of Mark, we can already see clearly there is no one better, no one else that you should trust in. No one in human history is worthy of your faith except for Jesus. So trust in him. Believe in who he is and in what he came to do, and that it was for you. Even if this means losing so much, being rejected and cast out, even if this means repenting of those things you loved most about yourself, counting it rubbish, even if it costs you this world, there is no better news. Because there's no better salvation. Because there is no better Savior than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Even in these first few verses, we see that he was your beloved son. That he was the one coming who John, the greatest of the prophets, could say he was not worthy to stoop down and untie the sandals of. Thank you that you showed that he is clearly the one that we should trust in. And thank you that Jesus came not to scorn or mock us, not to belittle us. He came to live like us, to walk in the wilderness for us so that he could die in our place and rise again to defeat sin and death and every opposition so that we who deserve nothing except wilderness and wrath can have a place in your eternal lasting city. We praise you and thank you for Jesus. Delight in our Savior. In his name we pray.